What is up, everybody? My name is James DeFiori, and this is Blackballed, and we have a repeat guest today. We've only had, I think, like three or four of those, um, and this gentleman was on my second episode, and he's one of those guys where if you think of, I still think of him as like the best debate moderator when it comes to elections. Um, he's had a show on uh, on TBO, The Agenda, for I don't even know, like, uh, what was it, like 30 years or 28 years or something like that. Um, and, and he's an all-around good guy, and we like him. He's a friend of the show, Steve Pakin. How you doing, buddy? Hi, James. A-OK. How about you? I'm doing well. Um, Great. I'm going to slip in a secret that you told me before the show about your favorite restaurant, because I want to know how you rank restaurants, because I've been thinking about it, and I think you need to reconsider, not because it's a bad restaurant, because it's a different class. Of restaurants like there's 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 five six different kinds of restaurants and i don't know if the mandarin makes the top the creme of the creme of the entire city does for me well okay. you gotta you gotta remember the, the mandarin is in the same building as tvo so it's close oh it's convenient. fast okay. yeah. it, you can have as much food as you want it tastes good it fills you up and uh, what else do you want it's almost it's it's you know, now that I think of it, it might be second to IHOP. I love the International House of Pancakes, too. So it's they're either 1A, 1B, something like that. Do you have logos, like, all over your couches and stuff? Like uh, Just of sports teams. Okay, really? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I, I enjoy talking to you about baseball. We, we've only had a couple conversations, I think, about baseball, just pieces of our interviews. But um, I wanted to – I know it happened a little while ago, but I wanted to see your reaction for this and what you thought just because it happened. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. See ya. A long home run. Ties this game at one. Man, what a great at bat for Seymour. Didn't quite get it in there. Judge just launches it. Hey, if you're going to be buying tickets anytime soon to any baseball. Um, there's crying in baseball sometimes. Uh, yeah, Tom Hanks told us there's no crying in baseball, but guess what? Actually, there is. I, I've drunk. seen that clip got to be a hundred times it, by now. Yeah, and it doesn't get old yet. Oh my gosh, it makes me choke up every time I see it. That that's why we love the game. Mm -hmm. That's why we take our kids. That's there's everything about that moment was perfect. Yeah, I I totally agree. And um, and because Moneyball is such a great movie, I always quote it that one line that everyone always quotes, which is, "How can you not be romantic about baseball?" And I, once in a while, I see you post something on social media that reminds me that you actually have a kind of storied past when it comes to baseball with your dad. Can you, like, you, you, you know, a tradition of sorts, if you can fill us in on yeah, that, that, because I like that. That's, that's what it's all about to me. That is very true. Uh, I think it started when I was 18 years old, and he, well, 
let me go back. Uh, we'll go back a decade before that. My, my dad certainly took me to my first Major League Baseball game, which was at Jerry Park in Montreal to go see the Montreal Expos. I remember uh, Andy Messersmith was the pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies that day, and he hit a grand slam home run. That doesn't happen very often, and it's certainly never going to happen again. Well, maybe Otani could do it. I take it back. He's the one guy who could do it. But pretty much that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And then, of course, uh, after the Expos, the Blue Jays came along, and I went to opening day with my family for uh, April 7th, 1977, for the first-ever Blue Jay baseball game. And then the following year after that, I graduated from grade 13. We were living in Hamilton at the time. And he said to me, let's do something special. What do you want to do? And before the Blue Jays were born, I was actually a Boston Red Sox fan, still am. Yeah. And I said, let's go to Fenway Park. And we did. Yes. We went to Fenway for three games in 1978. Just a glorious experience. And then I know many years after that, uh, he and I and my middle son went to Cooperstown. We went to see the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. And we've taken sort of baseball road trips not every year, but almost every year for the last many. And we've been sort of, you know, wherever a day's drive can take us. And um, there's something about baseball. I'm going on too long here, but let me tell you this. Uh, Peter Herndorf's a guy I used to work for. He used to head up TVO, chair and CEO of TVO. And he loves baseball as I do. And um, I remember him telling me once, if I want to go to a game to have my senses assaulted, I'll take my son to a Raptor game. But if I want to find out what's going on in my daughter's yes. life, I will take her to a baseball game. And that is so perfect because baseball allows for conversation like you and I are having right now, which is really hard to do at a Raptor game or even at a Leaf game for that yeah, matter. But that's really another is. reason to love baseball. Yeah. And and if you play, I played baseball for a long time. I played rep baseball for Whippy um, when I was younger. And um, it's not only just conversations that you can have with other people when you watch the game, but there is a weird self-discipline thing that happens when you're standing in center field and nothing is happening and you got to make sure like you go in your head often, like cycle through the day's events. What did I do at school? Am I going to get in trouble when I get home? Um, <laughs> if you wanted to pay attention, you didn't do any of those things, but, but it leave it. it uh, baseball leaves you just enough time for you to like almost feel nostalgic about the same game you're playing in almost, you know, like it's, it has uh, an impact on um, on everything. Spring training is weirdly awesome like that, too. <laughs> Nothing weird about it. It's just awesomely awesome. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to do it for the last couple of years because of mm -hmm. COVID and other things. But um, uh, I can remember, I think the first spring, spring training I went to, again, was the Expos. It was down somewhere in Florida. Jeez, I can't remember now. We're going That's back. West Palm. That's West Palm. Yeah, West Palm. Okay, you're right. West Palm Beach. They shared and it with the is, Yankees until okay. not not too long ago, but yeah. Yeah, and it's got to be it's got to be thirty years ago, I think my first one, and then I remember when the Jays signed Roger Clemens, who of course was ex of the Red Sox, so I loved him already, and uh, TVO magnificently. We wouldn't do this today, but back then, magnificently decided that they needed to do a field piece on this new Cy Young stud that the Blue Jays had just signed. So they sent me and a producer named Leora Eisen, who's still producing great work, uh, sent us down to um, Dunedin. And I hung out with Roger Clemens for a day. And uh, holy smokes, was that amazing. You wanna know the craziest thing about Roger Clemens? I, I know a couple things that are crazy about Roger okay, Clemens. Okay, let's of compare. All, I'm surprised let's, that he was with his team. Um, I, I, uh, <laughs> let's compare notes, because I think I got a crazier thing about Roger Clemens I'm than I'm sure you. you do, Steve, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> Roger Clemens is a JFK assassination aficionado. Really? And the reason is, he's from Texas, remember. 
The reason is because on November 22nd, 1963, he was in his mother's arms as a baby in Dealey Plaza and was there. What? Now, he obviously doesn't okay. remember any of it, but that's why he's a Kennedy assassination aficionado. How's that for a piece of baseball trivia? That is crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. I like the, the guy that did acid and played. Is it Doc Ellis? Is that who it is? The guy who threw a no hitter uh, on, on acid? Yeah, I got to tell you. Yeah. Some PR person put their claws into that. So he, it, I, I, from what I recall, he was out on a bender. He did acid and then he slept a day. And then went and pitched his no hitter. <laughs> so I was like, that's not being on acid. That's like the cobwebs of having a trip the previous day. I don't know how much acid you've done, Steve Pakin. I'm going to guess not too much, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not cool like you, pal. No, listen, it's not cool. I had hair once. Um, you know, I didn't grow beards because internet women told me to. <laughs> you know, it's a whole, a whole bunch going on right now. Um, can we talk a little bit about the Houston thing? It's Houston, right? That has that stupid thing in center field. That 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 mini putt thing. What, the hill? What, what, yes. I don't. Why is that there? <laughs> Do they have that in this park, or was that in their last park? I, I hope they got rid that. of it. To be honest, I haven't double checked, but it was there for years, and I was like, "Why is this happening?" Like, I felt like someone lost a bet. Well, you know, every baseball park, I mean, this is another one of the nice things about baseball. Every single arena in the NHL is basically the same, right? They're all, I know they used to have some quirky dimensions back in the day, but now they're all basically 200 by 85. Every baseball park is different. They all have such personality. And of course, being the Red Sox fan, Fenway Park is the most distinctive ballpark out of all 30, is it 31 clubs? I think 31 clubs. 32 now, I think, isn't it? Is that right? Oh, it's 31, 31, yeah. I think. Um, so, Tal Smith was the general manager and president of the Houston Astros when I guess they moved into this new park. And for whatever reason, they wanted to do something neat and quirky in center field. So they literally have a hill and it's called Tal's Hill. And if you're wow. playing center field for the Houston Astros, you got to know that when you go back, 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 back to the wall, you better put it into third gear because what is this? American Gladiators? Boost to like, get up the hill. It's not American Gladiators. <laughs> I don't know why no, it's there. Some days it is. I feel like someone's going to get injured on that and just that'll be the end of it. Like his man, his manager will get involved. Hey, and... I got a better one. Do you remember the old Tiger Stadium in Detroit? Oh, the, the, are you talking about the uh, seats that were at the no, lip of the upper no, deck? That you, no, okay. No, the flagpole. Oh, right. It was like was in center field. What and, wh was in the field of play? Oh my the god! The flagpole. They, some now, CFL had, consultant went to him and was like, <laughs> "It had padding on it, but the but the flagpole was actually in the field of play on the warning track in center field. Nobody believes that, but go go back and look at the tapes." <laughs> It's well, absolutely true. It's right there. And they had a yellow line on the flagpole. If it hit the flagpole above the yellow line, it's a home run below and it's ball in play. Another quirky thing. So it's a fair pole. Like it's, it's like, uh, it's not even a fair pole. It's like the middle of the outfield pole. Yeah. <laughs> That's the point of that. Uh, people were wonky back then. Oh, uh, here's a, uh, I'm going to pivot away from sports in a second, but, um, uh, mascots. Yeah. Are we kind of done with those like stuffies that are really big and walking around? It yep. depends. I, I, I've never been a huge fan with one notable exception, and that is, I think, Yuppie from the Expos yes. was kind of cool. Yeah, And I actually, think... now that I think of it, James, the San Diego Chicken, who was the original, he was kind of cool, too. The Philly Fanatic them, was pretty uh, cool. Philly Fanatic's okay, yeah. But, um, yeah, anyways, I, they're, they're kind of harking from a time gone by, like, carnies, you know, like yeah. that, kind of, that kind of culture. 
Um, okay. So there's a leadership race happening right now. And if you actually watched any, not the debates, but if you watched any coverage, um, Pierre Polyev won, what, three weeks ago? <laughs> like that. Like, he certainly appears to be the front runner. Um, I asked a question to Max Fawcett yesterday, and I was wondering what you think. We've all seen, um, I call it the conservative two-step, when they um, throw roses to a certain part of their base during the leadership campaign, and then they basically ignore the issues that those people represent when it comes to the election. I don't think Pierre Polyev is going to do that this time. Sheer did it. O'Toole did it. And I think that Polyev is going to be, I think he's reading the tea leaves and he's, he's not going to go back to the center. And I was just wondering, um, I mean, it would be a risk, but I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Well, at the risk of saying something outrageous, I think we maybe ought to wait until this thing is over before we crown him. I mean, he certainly appears to be the front runner right now. He gets incredible crowds to come out. He has a way of connecting with those crowds that is unlike anything I've seen for, for a guy who looks like he likes, uh, like he looks. You know, Justin Trudeau kind of took the world by storm six years ago, uh, in part because of, uh, you know, presentation. He's a good-looking guy who connected with audiences in a particular way. And Pierre Polyev doesn't have that. He is a very bookish, nerdy-looking guy. Well, here's with- a, I got a file photo of him, and I think he looks pretty good, personally. I mean, he's, you know, he's got a good haircut. <laughs> pretty sure that's not him. Yeah, pretty no, sure no. that's not him. For the people listening and not watching, um, that was my ongoing spoof of showing a picture of Millhouse from The Simpsons when it was. Yes, indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. So um, I know you don't like to predict stuff like that, but, um, you know, and it's a hypothetical, but it, it feels like it's one of those times where the ether doesn't really show us What's going to happen? Like, it's so many unpredictable things happening right now. People are deciding whether or not to vote for PPC or Green. They can't decide between those two. Mm. And I don't know if that's ever happened in this country before, but I, I would love to be schooled if you know of a time where people were that sort of like ambidextrous about where their politics would end up. Well, I think one of the things we learned from American politics uh, five and six years ago is that if you start over here with Bernie Sanders and you do a big loop-de-loop, you can kind of come to Donald Trump and those voters are many times the same voter. And you ask yourself, how can the most liberal Democrat and a man who portrays himself anyway as one of the most conservative Republicans, how can they possibly agree on anything? But of course, the one thing that they do agree on is a grievance politics for the middle class. And Bernie has been trying to represent, as has Donald Trump, Uh, the people who have felt for a long time as if they have no voice in public life. And, um, you know, there was a certain amount of that in Canada as well with the old Reform Reform Party and the new Democratic Party. I mean, it used to be that the NDP really represented a lot of the the old grievance issues and anti-establishment issues. And then for whatever reason, they lost a chunk of that vote to the Reform Party who came along with these ideas of Western alienation and, and feeling similarly unrepresented. So it's, it's yeah. very strange how they can be at polar opposite ends of the political spectrum and yet purport to represent the same people. I think a good example of what you're talking about happened when Ron Paul first ran for president, mm-hmm. because you started to see an overlap of libertarian and liberal ideas. But they would just get there from different starting points. So they yeah. both wanted to like decriminalize or legalize marijuana. But the reasons were completely different. Like the 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 left didn't want to clog up the court systems. They didn't want to uh, give people criminal records for using drugs. All totally legitimate reasons. And the libertarians were like, I just don't want the government telling me what I can put into my body. But but mm-hmm. still, they became strange bedfellows for for issues like that. 
Um, yeah, it was six million voters that voted for Trump chose Bernie Sanders as their second. Interesting, eh? It's crazy. Like it, it's not crazy. It, it, it is interesting, uh, and I think NAFTA has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. And they call it different things. They call it trade on the normal side. <laughs> on the other side, they call it the globalist <laughs> conspiracy. Mm-hmm. But um, are we a little bit worried about the um, over? Like, like, like he's throwing roses to the point where it's really only that group that he's talking to. It seems like, and I think he's kind of painted himself into a corner. And I know we're operating under the hypothetical that he wins, if you if you don't mind humoring me for a second, because I think that if he courts them and wins, he'll govern from the center, but he'll skip the campaigning from the center. And um, I don't think that's a long-term strategy for him because I think that crowd, they, you know, I don't think they have much as far as commitment goes. Well, let me put it this way, James. Uh, I remember talking to uh, the former conservative cabinet minister, Tony Clement, about this. And uh, Tony is supporting uh, Pierre Poilievre. And I asked him why. And he said, because he is the most conservative of all the the candidates in the race. And our leaders inevitably move towards the middle when they get elected. So I like them to start as far right as possible. So even if they move a bit to the middle, they're still conservative enough for me. And he said, I guess the, the problem with uh, Aaron O'Toole was he pretty much started as a red Tory. And then as he dashed to the center, um, you know, in Tony's view, he was indistinguishable from his liberal uh, counterparts. Uh, I don't happen to agree with that. But anyway, that's that's the argument he's making. Um, look, I think we're in the middle of a, of a battle for the soul of the future of the Conservative Party of Canada. And in fact, the conservative movement. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, about 22 years, so I guess we should do that again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you know, this party needs to decide what it wants to be. And it doesn't have to be either or. It can be somewhere on the continuum. But let's mm-hmm. just for argument's sake say that at one end of the political spectrum, uh, there are moderate, pragmatic red Tories uh, who believe in a role for government and who uh, who are not completely offended at the notion of the government sticking its nose in your business if they think mm-hmm. there are perfectly good and, and, you know, valuable reasons for doing so. And then you've got Pierre Poilievre, who wants to represent the sort of, um, you know, grievance vote of people who have felt unlistened to and, uh, you know, who talks in a particular way yeah. about particular issues and, you know, kind of loves to stoke up the, um, the populist anger against the so-called guardians of our, you know, political world. Um, the people over here think that think that those institutions that have been built up over 155 years have been pretty successful in making this country whatever it is today. And I guess people who are on Pierre Poilievre's end of the political spectrum think, you know, those institutions may be working for you folks, but they're not working for the folks that I represent. And therefore, let's burn them up, tear them down, you know, threaten to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada and so on and so forth. And good, let them have the debate and, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. 
I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Why isn't what Tony Clement described as just like a, an elaborate lie? <laughs> Why? Because, what do you, mean? you know, because they, they start off courting the right and then they move to the center. Well, wouldn't the people that have been that were courted at the beginning be a little bit miffed year after year after year? Like what what is the you know, I guess it's they're they're the only choice that they have, I guess, in that regard. But well, not anymore. Um, They've got the people's sure. party now. Yeah. Um, what do you make of um, I, I had Max Bernie on the show mm -hmm. and I got to say, I like him. I, I think he's an affable man. I think he really tries to like, uh, you know, give you every single boilerplate answer he has. <laughs> they got to rein him in a little bit. Um, I don't, I, I know how to navigate the waters where it's like, yep, racists will probably enjoy your immigration policy the most, but nope, it doesn't sound racist just on its face. Um, you know, yeah. we had him into uh, the, uh, we had him into our studio. Uh, oh gosh. I guess it was shortly after he created the people's party. And, um, well, uh, let me put it this way. You know, the, the people who take my picture and the people who do the sound and the, in other words, the technical crew that works for the agenda, listened to him, gave him a hearing, heard him out. And, um, you know, some of them quite liked what they heard. And I know there's probably a sense that the people, because they belong to a union, they must, they must therefore be all, uh, you know, a bunch of left wingers and um, not the case. Mr. Bernier, uh, you know, presents well. Uh, and we have to remember most of the time in his second language, so uh, more difficult for him to do so. But, you know, he looks good. He presents well. He can give a good speech. He knows what he believes, uh, despite, you know, ample opportunities over the years to bevel the edges on supply management. He has stuck to his guns on that. It cost him the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. The uh, dairy farmers in his own yeah, riding in the Beauce in Quebec, yeah. you know, rose I was up say, I think him. it was milk, but yeah. Yeah, they uh, yeah. they defeated him and helped Andrew Shear win that riding, and that's all Shear needed in order to defeat him. So yeah, I mean, he said some. I think he's gone too far a couple of times when he called for a revolution in the country. Yeah. Um. You know, to me, that's putting it a bit far. I I love politics, but I don't want to see anybody in this country die over it. So I draw the line there. But um, yeah, he's got some support. Yeah, it's it's funny how uh, January sixth in the states, and then our convoy thing here. Um, I mean, the silver lining is that the revolutionaries, not that impressive. Like, the, the, they weren't the best and brightest that they were sending. So it was like, okay, we're good. Um, but I can see something culminating. Um, it's so uncharted right now. But then someone always reminds me of the 70s. He's <laughs> like, we got over the 70s. We can get over this. And I'm like, really? Was that bad? He's like, you have no idea. Um, Mind you, there was no social media in the 70s, and I think that's a whole thing, added layer of thing that we have to get over because it's it's pretty awful much of the time. I don't know about all the time, but too much of the time. 
I think we'll end up um, drafting legislation that targets algorithms. You know, I think that that is what we're probably going to end up forcing if we bother, because because it, it apparently the uh, six thousand word fine print is right there for us to see. Um, <laughs> but you know, none of us really understand what's in it. Um, can you give me one of your um, interview uncomfortable moments? Because I've had more than a few. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've had a you want to compare notes here? No, it's just a, because I I actually like the like I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Like two, I was interviewing a reporter from Ukraine, and for like the first forty five minutes when he spoke, because he couldn't use his camera because the the it was martial law where he was, and so he couldn't have a lit up phone, and so I just put up his picture, um, working, and I found out forty five minutes in that it wasn't him. It was a picture, oh. but it happened to be a picture of one of his good friends. And then he told a story about his good friends. So I was like, it all worked. It's good. <laughs> well, but there I has give to you be an example. TV is so structured that there has to be something, you know? Yeah. I can give you an example of something that happened probably, oh, it's more than 25 years ago anyway. And, uh, you know, truth be told, I, I think I'm not over it yet. You remember the author Mordecai Richler. That's and he'd right. written a book about, uh, I can't remember the title of the book, but it was about a trip he took to the Middle East and particularly to Israel. And for whatever reason, when he arrived at the studio, and actually it was for a show I used to do called Studio Two. So we're going back to the late 1990s, I guess, middle 1990s. And he just didn't want to be there that day. And I remember talking him up in the green room ahead of time. You know, I like to chat with the guests ahead of time just to get them comfortable. Mm -hmm. I didn't know him at all, never met him before. So I wanted to introduce myself and hopefully create a little bit of connection between the two of us. His son, Daniel, uh, had had formerly hosted a show at TVO called Imprint. It was a book show. And I wanted to, you know, what's it, what's it, what's the best way to ingratiate yourself with a guest? Say something nice about their kids. So I explained to him about how Daniel was a friend of mine and had given me great advice to leave CBC and come to TVO and all the neat things I'd get to do at TVO, which has turned out to be pretty good advice. And um, so I thought we had a pretty good thing going by the time we got out into the studio. Well, we didn't. Um, <laughs> all the questions I asked got very, very short answers. Oh, um, there was no smoking in the building. So, of course, he lit up a cigarette midway through the interview. He was Christopher and Hitchens before Christopher Hitchens was cool. <laughs> you got that right. You got <laughs> yeah. that right. And at the very end of the interview, you know, the format of the show was such that I would say, thank you for coming. And then the director would cut the mics, cut to a wide shot. And we'd sit there in the wide shot with our lips flapping for a few seconds, talking to each other. And then, and then the definition black. game show crew would come in really quickly <laughs> to roll their stuff in. <laughs> well, what happened that day is that a bad interview ended. And as the director cut to the wide shot, uh, you could see Mordecai taking his microphone off, getting up and walking off the set. He could not wait the extra five seconds for us to fade to black <laughs> so before getting the hell out of there. And you can tell the way I'm, I think you can tell the way I'm telling the story I, I, I'm still kind of in awe of, of what went wrong that day. I, I've yet to figure it out. And I never saw him again, never met him again. So we never had a chance to talk about it. Um, what's funny about that is that I have the exact same story with Mordecai Richard and his son, except the opposite. When I made the cardinal error of uh, the, you know, that they used to have that books, uh, that book fair in, I think it was Queens park back in the day. Okay. Uh, or maybe it was front street. I can't remember, but, um, but he had a booth there, Daniel. And he had his book and uh, 
And my first words out of his mouth was that I was a real fan of his dad's. And I was just not a very well-versed 21-year-old kid. But I just, you know, I just didn't know that that was a bad etiquette. Also, you should never ask a woman if they're expecting if you don't know that they're expecting. I oh, yeah, that that's, times too. that's definitely not a good one. No, that's not a good one. Um, but I also, Mordecai Richard told me to go be a prostitute when I was like eight years old. So that was kind of cool. Um, I, I had that, a, that story might require a bit more explanation. Yes, but I like starting like that so people can think the worst for a moment. And then uh, I can bring him back like Steve Martin did uh, mm. when, he, when he did comedy. Uh, I, went, I, I was born in old Mont Montreal and my Italian relatives lived there still. And I recognized, I looked inside a bar and I recognized his uh, picture from the back of the Jacob Two, Jacob Tutu meets the Hooded Fang books. And um, my dad said, yeah, that, that's him. My dad hated him. I don't know why. My dad just <laughs> didn't like him at all as a writer. So I walked in and I yanked on his cardigan and I was like, how does one become a writer? Like a little idiot. And, um, and he gave me, he had his glasses down here and he gave me a once over and he goes, become a whore to your profession <laughs> now off you go and i did <laughs> thanks mordecai good advice it was sound advice um <laughs> we don't have any guys like that anymore i'm, I'm actually interviewing linwood barkley but everything is series now like w we don't have those canadian authors that are staple canadians anymore or at least not in the limelight that, that i can think of he's crazy successful eh linwood barkley oh dude like i work at a library successful he's just he's I, sold like hundreds of thousands of books Oh, it's like Maybe six millions. Million. It's six millions, million eh? Oh my yeah. gosh. He's almost oh, at Jordan Peterson, Peterson level huh. fame now. Yeah. Um, just joking, the nonfiction. But yeah, the the idea of that classic Canadian novelist, I I, I, just, I don't know. I just don't see it anymore. I'm wondering if it has anything to do with the way that we consume books in a series way or electronic way. It's, um, I, work, I work at a library. James Patterson, he needs his own library. He does kids a lot books, of books now too. Yep. He writes books. so many books that his pen name is Daniel Steele. Like he's got so many books. Um, Didn't he do a book with Bill Clinton? Yeah, and Hillary Clinton did one with a writer too, and they, yes. they act as consultants. Yeah, they, they did a novel sat together. There and, yeah, they yeah. probably sat there and drank scotch one night and got to put a name on it. Um, listen, uh, I, I want to know if you are going to step out of the uh, normal position that you have, which is not predicting anything and and predict something. Um, and, and it's just the, it's just the election. Do you think that we're going to see a minority government almost like every election now because of the way that the population seems to be segmented? Well, I got all excited about your wanting me to make a prediction about something and you didn't say what it was. So I was going to be happy to make a prediction <laughs> about who's going to end up in the world series this year or who's going to win the Stanley. Oh, uh, please I'm do happy those. to do that. Yeah, do those two. Um, yeah. well, okay. I, I, I'm going to be a Colorado Tampa Bay Stanley Cup final. Yeah, I agree. Um, if I had to bet on that today where we're one game into round two, that's what I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, that makes sense. I don't think you can win the World Series in... Generally, you can't win the World Series in April, but you can certainly lose it. And I think, sadly, my beloved Red Sox uh, have very little chance of making the playoffs this year. So huh. I guess I'd make that. And the Yankees, damn them. Damn you, those Yankees. <laughs> they are just on fire. En fuego, as we say. They're just never losing, which is... I, I, I don't know. Very disappointing. Um, yeah. But, it's Yeah, go ahead. But, uh, you know, I'm going to hugely disappoint you by saying I'm not going to make any predictions about politics <sighs> anymore because because uh, I, I presume you're talking federally about whether or not we're ever going to see a majority government again. Yeah, and, like I don't even I can't even figure out if the next election is going to be 18 months away or four years away. Like I, it, it feels like I don't know anything, which well, for me is 
if all it goes according to Hoyle, I mean, the NDP and the Liberals have signed this agreement to last another three years. So we should have some sense about when the next election goes, presuming that deal holds. Uh, but you shouldn't presume anything these days in politics because you just never know. That's true. But, um, well, look at it this way. If Pierre Poilievre uh, were to win the conservative leadership, that would presumably do great damage to the People's Party because that whole radical populist angry voice that Maxime Bernier wants to represent might very well be repatriated into the Conservative Party. Conversely, if um, Patrick Brown or Jean Charest were to win the Conservative Party leadership, uh, who knows? I think maybe a lot more people would leave the Conservative Party and go over and join Maxime Bernier's party because they'd see the Tory party as not being adequately radical for them. So, yeah. you know, you just you just never know. And, you know, just when you think, I mean, one conservative in Canadian history before 1984 was able to win back to back majority governments. Only one. His name was John A. Macdonald. And it went from all the way in the 19th century until 1988, until a second conservative leader won a consecutive majority government, and that was Brian Mulroney. So you, you know, James, you just never, you never know. We, we, we people who watch this stuff love to make rules and come up with theories so that we yeah. can hopefully better understand this. And then you get a situation like 2015, where Justin mm -hmm. Trudeau came from third to first in one election. That had never happened before. Um, do you so think the, you he would have? Do you think he would have won if his name was Justin Smith? Just got to. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I mean, the guy. I I know there's a temptation to downplay the skill that that guy has, uh, because a lot of people can't stand him for whatever reason. But I oh, mean, I know the reality. The, well, I, I know uh, the, <laughs> there 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 are many legitimate reasons. Of course. Okay. No, no, uh, it's not about policy. He comes off like he's acting, and that he's not acting well. And I think a lot of times he actually is being himself. Like the, the, the funeral eulogy thing. That was like the first time most of us saw an example of that. And I walked away and I, I remember being like, was, was, that, was that rehearsed? Was, was that the way he is? I, I couldn't tell. And then now it feels like, I don't even know if he knows anymore. Because once you get into the big chair, then all of a sudden you got your PR staff and your image people and your photographer and everything. I don't know. Well, he is a very he's a very dramatic guy to begin with, right? He has a dramatic personality, and you can tell that he's also a guy who who, you know, there's two different kinds of politicians. There are people who get energized by being with crowds and with people, mm -hmm. and there are people for whom that experience completely drains them, and it's obvious which category he's in. Yeah. And he won the majority government the first time out with a pretty good number, and and despite getting fewer votes than the Conservative Party two elections in a row since then. He still managed to win. He's he's popular in the cities of this country, and the Conservative Party has a real terrible MTV problem: Mo Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. Yeah. And if if the Conservative Party insists on just basically yielding, on uh, you know three quarters of the seats in this country to the Liberals in the three biggest cities in the country, uh, they're never going to win. No, they're not. Um, but you'll, oh, have you ever said the F word? A, prof, a viewer wanted me to ask you that question. I swear to God, because, because you seem to have a clean cut image. So we're just wondering if you've ever sworn. Have I ever sworn? Yes. Have I okay. ever sworn on the air? No. This is just a podcast. It's barely anything. Right? You can... <laughs> well, let me put it this way. One of the reasons that I secretly wish I were, I was David Hurley or Scott Reed or even Jenny Byrne for that matter, is that yeah. they get to swear their lungs out when they oh, do their it's podcast. Beautiful. It's like and a it concerto. does make me jealous from time to time. Yeah. But you know what? I work for the Pokeroo Network, so we got to kind of keep it Disney, right? 
Yeah, that's true. Um, Steve Pakin, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. You didn't have to do this. I appreciate it. I hope the, uh, the Mandarin is going down well. And, um, and we'll talk to you. Guys, you should tune into The Agenda. I've been watching it for, I don't know, 20 years, whatever it is. How long has it been on air? Is it 28? Is that- the Agenda has been on the air for 16 years, but I did this show, Studio oh. 2, before that for 12. So I'm coming up in August on 30 years at TVO, which I can scarcely believe. But there you go. Yeah, you look great, by the way. Like I, I've been doing podcasts on a regular basis for a year and a half, and I'm like, is, can I, can I retire now? Because <laughs> it's very tiring doing your own thing. But um, asalu, well done, and um, we'll have you. Am back I allowed soon. to plug something, James? Of course, plug anything you want. Okay, plug well, you, you know what? Honestly. I, I thank you for mentioning the agenda, which is on television every night mm-hmm. at eight and eleven on TVO, plus live streamed on our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pages. But I also, during the course of this writ period, am doing with John Michael McGrath a daily podcast called the On Poly Podcast. That's, of course, the hashtag for Ontario politics. And we'll do that every day uh, until uh, Election Day, June the 2nd. And we've been doing it weekly for a few years already. And uh, I love the world of podcasting. It really is great. I don't swear, but I, yeah. I, I, I get a little closer to the line of what's inappropriate to say than I can on television. So well, I'm enjoying all that too. Guy, Steve. I don't want you to swear. Um, but <laughs> just before you go though, that poly thing is interesting because I don't think a lot of people might know what it is, but it's an AI polling system and it's freakishly accurate, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's another thing. Every Monday during the campaign, although not this Victoria Day Monday, but every Monday during the campaign, we've had Aaron Kelly on. Aaron is a pollster with a group called Advanced Symbolic, Advanced Symbolics Inc. They're out of Ottawa. And you're quite right. They don't just do polling online or by telephone, they somehow have an artificial intelligence algorithm that is able to kind of crunch what's going on online on social media and include that in the mix. And Hmm. she believes, and she has some evidence to back this up, she believes that gives her a great deal of both numerical and qualitative insight into what people are thinking and talking about to enable her to make predictions um, much more accurately than others. Sometimes she's right. Sometimes mm-hmm. the AI is wrong because it's still learning. She accurately predicted, and they call it, it's called Polly. She nicknames this thing Polly for politics. Mm. She accurately predicted Brexit. She accurately predicted the Trump victory, which yes, precious few people right. did. Yeah. Um, she certainly predicted uh, Joe Biden's victory, although she gave him too many electoral votes and it was closer in reality to what she forecast. And of course, we're going to have her on throughout the writ period for the Ontario election. Uh, to see. And at some point, probably a few days before E-Day, she will make her call and then we'll see how close she gets again. She got it pretty close last time. Yeah, she's she's really interesting. To, uh, I didn't know that that existed until I watched her on your show. So yeah. um, that was great. Well, you'll be my elect- election coverage guy. And uh, again, I appreciate you coming. Thank you very much. Steve Payton, Always a everybody. pleasure to be with you. Thanks a lot, you, sir. Um, Love that guy. He's like, you know, I don't want to say, I, I hate when people say he's like one of the nicest guys. Like he probably is one of the nicest guys, but like, he's such a professional. Like he has that, that when I was saying he was mo- like, he's a good debate moderator. I told him once, I think, um, I can't remember in person or like when we had lunch once or, or if it was on, uh, this show, like last year. Um, but that, you know, when I, t- like if people tune into his show, they won't be able to tell if the even if the person that he's talking to was like left wing or right wing because he just kind of keeps it about you know the datings on the surface that we can all look at and be tangible and work together like he just has a really good method um so he's a good example for for journalists that are coming up to to sort of stay on point clearly i didn't have um steve to teach me what i was supposed to learn when i was young 
but um yeah he's 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 a great guy so we have linwood bark as i was saying on the 24th and that's going to be really interesting because um well first of all i haven't read his book yet <laughs> so i have to do that quick so this is the book um <clears throat> take your breath away it's part of a series like i was saying to steve and um you know that's one of the reasons why i don't read books uh, novels because like i'll read nonfiction. Novels, it's just all series, and um, it's, it's hard for me to do. But I'm going to read that book, even though it's like number 15 out of the series. And, um, and yeah, we'll talk to him. And then on the 26th, we have Dave Mercer, who's the king of fishing. And the sole reason we have him on is not because, you know, I'm not saying we don't like fishing, but I went to grade school with him. And the first time I met him, I saw him suplex another kid and then start doing the Hulkamania thing in a Scottish accent. So that was weird. I also wanted to, I was going to show it to... Uh, to Steve, but um, a file photo came out with uh, Pierre Polyev's dad, and they thought it was going to be disastrous, but it just it just made it more popular because a lot of the people that saw the picture were like I have that same bed, so I thought that was really interesting. So Polyev can't even lose, uh, you know, even when he tries or even when his father tries. Okay, guys, that's enough of my jokes. I will see you on Tuesday unless I have a show on the weekend, but until then. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. I want to live at the Blue Hotel. The podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.